Good morning. We're going to be in 1 John 4. If you'd like to follow along and you don't have a Bible, there is a blue Bible under one of the seats around you, and that will be on page 592. And we're going to start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, to be in this love that, oh my gosh, I'm like on the side here. Here we go. Okay. In this is love. That not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love God, who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. Great job. Oh, man, that's a Genesee elder, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Josh, and I get to unpack what she just read through. The reason why it was hard to read, one of the reasons is the word love is just used all over, and it changes just slightly. 27 times the Apostle John uses the word love here. And I think it's fitting because X said this last week, but here's what John's doing. He's correcting last week false teaching. Be on the lookout. You should not believe everything that comes into your home, into your ears, into your office. You've got to test the spirits. There's false teaching out there, the apostle John says back then. And I say, still to this day, that's still true. But then he switches and he basically goes back and forth. Correction, rebuke, and then this like nurturing grandpa type figure. And also, don't forget this. And in this section, it's a big long section, basically telling us to love one another. And it's also fitting, we have our volunteer fair. Some of you are like, you were right. It's not as wonderful as the graphic made it out to be. And you are correct. But this is your chance to get into the life of the church. And here's the reality. Like a year from now, how different are you going to be based off your activity in this church 
or whatever church you decide to really hunker down in over the next 12 months, how different are you going to be? Here's what a lot of Christians, especially in our camp, people who really believe this is the word of God and take this to be true, overemphasize. It's if you're just teaching the right things, you will get the right results. And if any of you were ever raised in a home who mom and dad taught the right things, you can teach the right things and miss it completely. I read this book a while ago called The Other Half of the Church. I thought it was going to be about introverts. I open it. It's actually about the brain. And it basically says, people learn when they feel safe. And all the counselors in the room say, this is my world. I get this. Like, trauma messes with us, and we, we, our brain kind of shuts down. The author says this. The right brain is processing these questions as they enter a situation. I'll just say this is what some of you were thinking as you walked in here. You can take that off. Not yet. Who is happy to see me here? What do I feel right now? Is there anyone here who understands me? How do I act like myself right now? What do my people do in this situation? Old people, young people, black people, white people, special needs parents, women, homeless what do I do in this? Like, how do my people have to navigate this situation? The answers to these questions drive everything about our character development. Like, we can teach the right things. X could kill it for the next two years with truth, 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 truth. But if we miss love, we miss it. We miss it, like, big time. Like, I summarize all that book into this question. Is this a place where someone like me will be loved? And just some of you have answered that affirmative yes. Some of you, TBD. Is this a place where someone like me can be loved? So as we head out into the volunteer fair and decide to sign up, here's what's in the back of our mind. Those of us that own this church, not literally own it, but like we take ownership over this place and this church and this name, Redemption. There's people walking in here, and the question in their mind, before we tell them the truth about the Trinity and salvation and heaven and hell and forgiveness, is they're asking, is this a place where someone like me will be loved? The shorthand way we try to get at this in our ministries is this little statement, no love center. Kids, if you're in the kids' ministry, you're wearing a t-shirt with these, and you're like, what does this mean? It's this, no love center. That's the order. We want ministries that know people. I don't want a men's Bible study where 50 guys show up and 12 of them never get asked their name. That's a fail in my assessment of things. It could do great things in other settings, but not here. You know people. You love them where they're at. And then out of that, you center their hearts and their lives and their affections and their rhythms and their practices and their money and their marriage and their kids and their grandkids on the person of Jesus but it's out of a loving relationship environment. Those of you who grew up in great homes, like this is intuitively what your parents and grandparents were doing for you. They were knowing you, even in your annoying seasons, especially even in your annoying seasons. I'm going to know this little 13-year-old because that's what good, loving environments require. No love center. And this is what I think the Apostle John is just doing for. So here's our big idea. It's down in verse 19. I'm going to take John's words and try to just unpack it one word at a time. 
But here's what John says in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're walking through that verse word by word as we unpack all that John had to say in this message. So I just want to pray and ask God to make us more aware of love and its centrality to what we're trying to do, church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for everyone who walked in here, especially those who walked in here with trepidation and fear. We're not going to create a perfect culture overnight. We're not going to all be loving to the extent we want to be overnight, but we want to take steps in that direction. So use your word and your spirit in us to make us more of what John had in mind when he wrote this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, word by word. So here we go. First, we. I'm just going to walk through. We, we, we. Who is the we John is talking about? I'll just say it on the front end. It's the Christian church. It's the church. It's not a message for the world. This message, we love because he first loved us, is not a message for Republicans in the room to go take to their Republican friends to teach them how to love Democrats better, unless that other Republican happens to be a Jesus-loving person. This is a Christian message. Where do I get that from? Let's look at the bookends of the section here. Verse 7. Beloved, that's his code language for my dear, precious, lovely church. Picture the sweetest old man you've ever known. Beloved. That's his statement for the church. Let us love one another. One another throughout this book is talk shorthand for other Christians. Go down to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he ends the book just, he's like, just so I'm 100% clear, verse 20 and 21. What I was saying that whole time as I said love 27 times, verse 20. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Brother language is church language. This is a church message. So you're like, it's not me. I'm not a Jesus person. I just kind of wandered in here. You get to sort of sit and listen in on a family discussion and say, is that a type of family I want to be a part of? That's what you get to do in this moment. But this is for the church. This is for the Claytons and the Chris's and the Aubrey's and the Genesis church. We, we, what's the next word now? We love because he first loved us. Love. The word love is used 27 times, as I said. Agape. There's four Greek words for love. Agape is the highest form. Unconditional love. We love. I wrote down 12 times it's used in reference to our love of God and others. And 15 times love is used in reference of God's love for us. We love. Chandler said this about me. It was some conversation we had a while back. It was kind of offensive, but I have grown to. He says, you're sort of like the reality bringer. Like people talking about stuff, and then Josh talks, and it's like... I live in this world where I navigate a lot of younger people who often need reality brought. And I live amongst church leaders who often need reality brought because we live in this embellished reality of who we are and how important we really are. So somebody needs to bring the reality. 
I'll say this. I want to bring the reality to the world word love. 27 times this used. And if you don't have something in your head that you can hang on to other than the letters L-O-V-E and whatever most recent romantic book you read, you're going to miss out on what John is saying. What is love in your mind? Here's my encouragement slash challenge. Every family, every husband, every wife needs to have like a working definition of love in their head. So we don't live up here and need some reality bringer to say, what you're talking about is cute, but it's not love. Like, what's your definition of love? Here's my shorthand one. Love is death in me. That's mine. I was about to hang out with my wife's family for an extended period of time, and I thought of all the complaints that I wanted to share with someone, my wife being at the top of the list, and I thought, She's navigating her own stuff. I'm going to put that to death, and I'm just going to go do this. Love, I literally thought, love, how do I kill this right now to love my wife better? Death in me is love for her. Here's a few definitions that have really impacted me and other church leaders. This is from a guy named Paul Tripp out of Philadelphia. as a pastor, counselor. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require payback, or that that person you're loving is deserving. You're like, that's not a very good definition of love. Give me my romantic novels, I get it. But that actually pins you to something, to sort of like, love is the willing self-sacrifice, so death in you for the good of another. Well, why do you do it for that other? It has nothing to do with if they deserve it or they're ever going to pay you back. So let's take spouse and family off the table. In your jobs tomorrow, a way you could love someone without ever getting recognition or payback for the worst person you can think of. Love one another. You're like, I'm out. How do I sneak out this before this? Here's another one. This one's from our membership packet. Jesus shows us how love is truth-telling, humble, sacrificial, considerate, hospitable, hostility-absorbing, non-reactive, lower-place-taking, honest, initiative-taking, thoughtful, serving, forgiving, and ultimately substitutionary. Like That's too many words. I get it. It's too long of a tattoo. I'm never going to remember that. <laughs> you could take a few of those words. Lower-place-taking. And when the idea or the opportunity for love arises, am I lower place taking here or not? And it's like, whew, that's, let's get back to reading the word love. I like a message about love, 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 love. All we need is, that's what we need. We just don't like it because it requires a lot of us. We need to love one another. Here's another way to think about it, and I'm just going to fly through this. In the New Testament specifically, there's 59 times where the word one another is used. Blank one another, blank one another, blank one another. I'm going to fly through this. I'll put it up as a blog this week. But here's all the other ways the Bible makes us love one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. 
build up one another, be like-minded with one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love with one another, be kind and compassionate with one another, speak with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with one another, submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given you for the sake of one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. You could take any of those for a season. Build up one another. We Love. Take that love out there and fill it in with something a little more concrete. That's what John is saying. We love one another. Now, here's the question, the follow-up. Well, why? Simon Sinek, whatever his name is, had a TED Talk. Start with the why. Blew up. And he basically says, in all areas of life, family, parenting, business, you always need to have a why at your center is why you do what you do. Well, we love why? The next word John addresses is because. Because. Here's a few options that you could fill in this. We love because, well, we're naturally loving people. I don't know about Smiths, but Watts, this is kind of what we do. We just love people. We kind of have it nailed. We've had it nailed for a long time. This is what we do. We love because it's the right thing to do which is not inherently wrong, it's just insufficient for a really substantial why at your core. We love because our culture has taught us how to love so well. As we devour one another perpetually in this world, over everything, this isn't being taught, just in the air we're all breathing. Or we love because evolution has led us to this point. We started as something, we got better, and the evolutionary stage we're now in is that we love one another, which is just scientifically ridiculous as a former math and science teacher. Tim Keller has a quote about Annie Dillard, author. She kind of dabbled in Catholicism, but always was like looking at faith as for us goofy people. But she even saw this as she thought about evolution and science sort of as the backdrop to all your answers for everything. He says this about her. She saw that all of nature is based on violence. Yet we inescapably believe that it's wrong for stronger human individuals or groups to kill weaker ones. But if violence is totally natural, why would it be wrong for strong humans to trample weak ones? There is no basis for moral obligation unless... We argue that nature is in some part unnatural. Christians would say there's another realm at play, setting the rules. We can't know that nature is broken in some way unless there is some supernatural standard of normalcy apart from nature by which we can judge right and wrong. Translation, if you just take faith off the table and science and science-minded people get to dictate your worldview, you will never land on love, ever. You will out of like what's called common grace. It will just keep seeping back in your life because God is so big and sovereign that he just keeps 
but it's not going to be from humans and evolution and any sort of progress that got us to the point where now love is the thing we figured out. That's not where it came from. Well, where did it come from? Very next word in this verse, we love because he. This is unique to Christianity, biblical Christianity. God is the actor, the author, the star, the initiator, the first, and the last. God is at the center of it all. We love because he, he, he being God. Where do I get this out of this passage? Just so you see. Look at verse 8, and then we'll look at verse 16. It essentially says the same thing. Verse 8 says this. Anyone who does not love, uh, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is Love. Jump down to verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. I just want to stop right there. That sentence sort of can be accepted by anyone in here. Except I think culturally the better way to say what people, most people think is love is God. God is love saying God is the or- originator of all love, culture wants to put love as the pedestal and the goal and serve love, the idea and concept of love being God. And the Bible says over and over again, God is love. Why does that matter? Because here's where a lot of bad theology kicks in, and it's nobody trying to be bad or miss. But why did God create the world? A lot of people with faith answers in their Bibles open say wrong stuff to that a lot. One of the most easy and accessible wrong answers to that is because he wanted somebody to love. And that is a billion percent wrong. Because that paints God as being lonely, in need, deprived of something. And if God is Father, Son, Spirit, and he has no beginning... And he has no end. From eternity past, the Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Spirit. The Spirit was loving the Father. The Spirit was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Father. They existed before any of us were around in perfect, loving relationship. God is love. That's what that statement means. God in his very nature of being a triune God is loving. No other religion can claim that because the Trinity belongs to us, church. Every other religion, their God that creates, creates out of need or something missing inside their deity that he must now create so he can be filled in some way. God does not need to be filled. He did not have a a shortcoming of love. He had an abundance of love. God is love, and he created out of the abundance to share that triune love with us. That's the biblical answer to why God created. He is fully loving. And it's spilled out into creation, out of an abundance, not out of a need. He, God, is the big deal in this, not us. What's the next word? We love because he first. First. He first loved us. I want you to read with me verse 13 through 14. The only time Jesus is mentioned in his relationship to us is in this section here. And it's fascinating because it provides one of the most beautiful hyperlinks in the Bible. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. 
because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Stop right there. So if you've been a Christian any length of time like me, you read Savior of the world and it sort of just goes past you. Because you've heard Savior and world a lot. But how many times do you think Jesus is called the Savior of the world in the Bible? My guess would be like, I don't know, three dozen. Twice. So John is referencing one other time where Jesus' title is Savior of the world. And it's back in John. If you want to, you can flip back there. But I'm just going to set the stage for you. This is the other time when Jesus is called Savior of the world. It's a very famous story and made it as a chosen opening. John chapter 4, verse 5. And he had to pass through Samaria, this being Jesus. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. Verse 7, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Stop right there. A woman at noon is the only one sitting at a well because a woman like her is not loved anywhere she goes. She's Samaritan. Think of racially segregated America, blacks and whites, Samaritans and Jews. Think of whatever sort of genocide you can think of. This is Jews and Samaritans. And this is a woman, knock number one, a Samaritan, knock number two, with a checkered past, knock number three, culturally rejected. So she does what culturally rejected people do. They sort of live in the shadows. In this case, the shadow happens to be noon because no one else goes out at noon because it's so hot. And she's going to get water. And some guy, Jesus, just happens to be sitting there. And the first thing that happens between those two people is an initiating conversation from Jesus. Give me a drink. Who moved first? Jesus. And they have this back and forth. Like you have with some of your non-Christian family and friends and all her things. Ah, but you guys worship like this. Your church is like this. And he just keeps getting to the heart of it. Like, let's talk about you. I don't, let's talk about your husbands. Let's talk about what's going on here. But how did that relation happen? Coincidentally, this Jewish rabbi happens to move in this part of town that he should not be in because of his ethnic background. And he sits down during a part of the day where only one person happens to be there. And he says, hey, give me a drink. And he initiates this conversation. You can go back and read it. It's beautiful. But she falls in love with Jesus. She showed up because everywhere she goes, is this a place where someone like me can be loved throughout all of her life? No, 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 no. Most women get water when it's cool in the morning. But that is not a place where someone like me can go. So she shows up, and he first initiates. This is Christianity. It is always responding to what God initiates. We are never the initiators. We always 
respond. He moves first. And then fast forward to verse 39, if you're tracking with me. What happens? She goes and tells everyone about what just happened. I've never been loved before. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two more days with those Samaritans. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no bit longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Why? Because he moved first. And John now is referencing this little title, Savior of the world. The Savior of the world is the one who moves first. And what does he do? The last thing I want to spend the last few minutes, he loves us. Why did he show up in Samaria, sitting down in the middle of the day with the most scandalous woman around? Because he loved her. Before, he turned, before she was a thought in her mother's eye, Jesus Christ, fully God, had her in his sights to love and to pour out his love on her. And we just happen, by the grace of God, get to see it in Scripture happen. And now John is basically going to take what happened on the ground in Samaria and zoom up and say, this is always how God loves us. How does he love us? I just want to walk us through a few verses and wrap up our time. Verse 8. He always takes the first step. Let me get back to 1 John here. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is the initiating force of love in this world. Verse 9, what else does he do? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Stop right there. So God is the initiator of love. He is the manifester of love. That word manifest means reveal, which means here's how love with God works. He has a plan, a vision, something beautiful in store. In his love story, he's writing. And it's completely in his mind. And only by grace does he reveal it to us in the person of Jesus. Like my wife just had her birthday. And I was, I was thinking about this passage. Thinking about of all the birthdays, we've had 17 together. Like, where does this rank? And it's like, ah, middle. As far as my, like, revealing love and plan for her birthday. I got her a few puzzles, which in her mind is like the jackpot. But <laughs> I've done better. God's love plan for us, there is no better. He didn't halfway work on it. He didn't piece it together last minute. God, all the power, all the resources, everything necessary, took all that he has and put it towards this plan, this manifest plan that he shared among us. And how did he reveal it among us? The next key word we see in the back half of 9 the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent Jesus. Why? Because he loves us. Love takes action. John Mayer, love is a verb. It ain't a thing. It's not something you shout. It's not something you scream. It moves. And God sends his son. Why? Verse 9b, it's the song we just sang together, for us to live in him. So that we might live life through Jesus. Like all of us are trying to figure out how to do life. And God has the answer. His name is Jesus. And we can live life through the power that he provides by his spirit. Why is that possible? Because God loves us. 
He doesn't want to see us fumbling around in this life. He wants to see us victorious. And we can because he sent his son to live in us. But more than that, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation uses a handful of times. It means wrath absorber. He loved us, so he sent his son so that we might live. And he sent his son so that he might die instead of us. To take the wrath for us. Love costs. How much? Costs Jesus everything. Like I'm driving on Thunderbird Saturday, go get my haircut, and this car drives next to me, like going crazy. I'm like, what is happening? It's fairly normal because my wife says I'm a road rage inducer, so there's a lot of people on the road. <laughs> and I don't have like one of the cool things, so I got like. And this guy's like, you got sunglasses on the back of your truck. I'm like, oh man, thanks. Turn over, get him. And I'm driving my, I'm like, how much longer would he have stuck with me? Like, if that's me, I don't even get to that point where I chase him down. I'm like, that sucks. <laughs> like, love costs. And all of us has been on the receiving end, on the giving end of coming up short of wanting to pay the full cost for what it would require to love that person, that enemy, that in-law. That spouse, that ex, that teenager, that infant. Why? Because it costs something. And Jesus took the whole cost. Like we're going to go through the book of Revelation after this. And it's all about this number seven. There are seven churches and seven trumpets and seven. You're like, what is going on here? And seven it just means completion. And seven bowls of wrath. What does that mean? God's full wrath is coming down on this earth. Jesus Christ took it for us. He was the propitiation. All of God's anger that he should have towards you for the sin that you've committed and the sin committed around you, he took all of that. He is the propitiation. Love costs him a lot. But it doesn't just stop with like a judge gavel, not guilty. Verse 12 tells us God's essence of love. It costs but it's also relational. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And the word I wrote here is just love is relational. Abide is used like a billion times in this book. Abide is just John's way to say God wants the most intimate relationship you could ever imagine. He wants to be so closely tied to every aspect of your life. Why? Because he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Jesus paid the cost so that he could have a relationship with you. And then more than that, he wants to perfect you. The word perfected is used in here quite a bit. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he, as he is also, we are in this world. Verse 18. This could be the most beautiful words from our heavenly father. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God's love is perfecting. And here's the first thing he wants for us. For me, preachers don't graduate early. We're in this together. Is that my relationship with God would less and less and less be defined by fear whatsoever. You can call fear guilt, shame, fear, insecurity, whatever it is in you that's not full confidence is not from God. 
It's from living in a sin-broken world. And God is trying to squeeze that out of you with his perfect love so that you have complete confidence to go to him. Like, think of your kids that, like, our, it's easy. Ozzy has had the best run of any walk kid, for sure. Like, there's not even a close second. And here's mostly what it comes down to is me and Aubrey chilling out a bit. A lot bit, my oldest would say. And just pressing into love and love and love and love. And God is doing the same as he loves us. All that fear, trepidation of others in your relationship with God, he wants to perfect out of you. Love is perfecting. But then another thing that his perfecting love is doing, verse 12, jump back up. What we already read. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What is John saying? No one's ever seen God. Okay, I get that. But if we love one another, okay, I'm tracking with you. So if we try to live out what we're talking about here, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Here's what I think he's saying. None of us see God until glory. How are we going to experience the fullness of God here and now as the love of God is abiding in us and we're working on loving us together? Translation the church. Translation this dumpy little place with this dumpy little people. God's perfect love is being displayed as he abides in us and we will get to see the invisible God as we love the visible people around us and we are loved by the visible people around us. That is what John wants for us. That's what I want for us. No love center. I want us to be a loving church. We love no love center. Very simple to say. Very difficult to do because it costs a lot. I want to talk to two people and then I want to pray for us. The first person is those who don't even know how to do that. Like I this is all like, my family's terrible, I'm terrible, I just, John, John gives the answer for any of us in this room on how we're to get this love. The very first verse, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This right here is like, it's sort of, skips past a very important part of Christianity, namely the love that we receive from the Father. So I want to encourage some of you in this room with this. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. God centered me as an 18-year-old idiot, and I was born of God. And all that happened is someone brought up my sin, someone brought up Jesus, and I said, I want that, and I confessed Jesus, and I was born of God in that moment. Not because I did anything, because God walked towards me. I was centered, and he's been loving me ever since. And now I know him. I have this relationship with the Father that is better than any other relationship I have, and I have an amazing wife and great kids, and I'm the best dad in the world, and a really good mom. You guys, like, I don't know if she watches, but, you know, they're all great. He loved us first. If you don't know how to love, it's because the Bible would say you have not been born of God. And all you do is confess. 
that he is who he says he. And that process begins of centering, loving, and knowing you so that you can go out now and do the same. Know, love, center. If you know Jesus and you are loved in any capacity in this church, here's my encouragement. As we step out and you decide, oh, am I going to join an RC, a small group? Am I going to serve? Like, don't forget the No Love Center. What we're asking you to do is not just go fill a void. The kids are back there. They all have a name. They all have a story. And a lot of them walked in here like, is this a place where someone like me can be loved? And some of you are going to open up your homes for RCs. Is there, you're going to be people will show up like, is this a place where someone like me can be loved? And your job, my job, our job is to provide environments where people are known and loved and centered. John will say it this way. We love because he first loved us. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this book that just keeps coming back to the basics, like love. In a world that throws out words all the time and often too lazy to define, thank you that Jesus is our definition of love. That we as Christians do not have to come up with it on our own. We don't have to seek it out and find it, that you, in love, sought us. And you did more than just ask us for a drink of water like you did with the woman. But you asked us for a relationship. A relationship totally secure in your life, death, and resurrection so that we could begin to walk with you and be perfected by your love and in your love. And now we, as your church, get to take this on together to learn how to love and be loved. And God, we just confess... We're all figuring this out. So help us even in this moment, this morning together, to have it figured out just a little bit more.